X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Monday, May 17th. Today, back in the day on May 17th, 1858, Portland's first public school opened. After several decades of private and semi-public schools operating in Portland, the Central School opened on land owned by the school district. The school was located on 6th and Morrison, where Pioneer Square Courthouse currently sits. L.L. Terwilliger served as the school's first principal. The first class of students numbered 280. And today, back in the day on May 17, 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a unanimous decision on Brown v. Board of Education. The court's 9-0 ruling said that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal and therefore violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Unfortunately, the ruling did not issue any method for the desegregation of schools, and a later decision only ordered states to desegregate, quote, with all deliberate speed. The Brown v. Board of Education decision was a massive victory for the civil rights movement and paved the way for widespread racial integration. Despite the decision, state lawmakers in the American South staged the massive resistance to deliberately stall efforts at desegregating schools. However, four years later, in the case of Cooper v. Aaron, the court reaffirmed the Brown ruling while explicitly stating that state officials had no power to overturn it on a local level. Today, back in the day on May 17, 2004, Massachusetts became the first U.S. state to legalize same-sex marriage. The legalization came as a result of the state's Supreme Court ruling in the case of Goodridge v. Department of Public Health that it was unconstitutional to only allow heterosexual marriage under the Massachusetts Constitution. The ruling made Massachusetts the sixth jurisdiction in the world to legalize gay marriage. It was instrumental in paving the way for the legalization of same-sex marriage on a national level in the United States in 2015. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Portland Public School Board member Michelle DePass. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. In response to recent gun violence in the city, Portland police were out in force over the weekend. Still four more shootings occurred by Sunday afternoon, leaving one woman dead and one man seriously injured. This brings the total amount of shooting homicides to five this month, with at least 15 injured. In an effort to combat the continued violence, Portland police established the Enhanced Community Safety Team earlier this year. Their goal? To provide a full-time response to shootings. The team is composed of three sergeants, 12 officers, and six detectives. They have also partnered with the FBI, who had agents on the street this weekend as well. In fact, special agent in charge of the FBI in Oregon, Kieran L. Ramsey, went so far as to describe gun violence in Portland as, quote, beyond a public safety crisis. And while the city council approved a $6 million plan to combat this surge in gun violence almost six weeks ago, it has been slow to materialize. 
In a statement issued Friday, Mayor Ted Wheeler and the city's four commissioners discussed how people from California and Washington seem to be playing a part in the local violence. At the moment, Wheeler and the commissioner's biggest fear is current violence leading to a retaliatory cycle. Meanwhile, in a separate statement on Friday, Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt said the prosecutors would, quote, continue to prioritize and apply all of our legal resources to investigating and prosecuting acts of gun violence to hold shooters accountable. And now your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 1,258 new and presumptive COVID cases over the weekend. The total number of cases now sits at 195,684. There were also five new COVID-related deaths. Oregon now has a total of 2,587 deaths. Multnomah County missed a deadline on Friday and will not be moving to a lower-risk COVID-19 restriction level. The deadline was for submitting a required vaccine equity plan to the Oregon Health Authority. However, they still hope to reach a lower-risk designation in time for Memorial Day weekend. This will require them to submit an equity plan to OHA by May 21st. The reason for the delay? In a statement, county health officials said they want to give the equity plan, quote, the same attention to inclusion that the county has given to its overall COVID-19 response. The equity plan includes 14 questions that aim to close race and ethnicity gaps in county vaccination rates. Multnomah County's Public Health Director Jessica Guernsey said that the county's primary focus right now is on addressing trust in public health. However, other barriers like traveling to vaccine sites and language accessibility remain top priorities too. If the county's equity plan is submitted by May 21st and approved, then Portland will move to a lower risk status on May 28th. This would allow most food and entertainment establishments to increase from 25 to 50% capacity. The Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde received an $800,000 federal grant from the Environmental Protection Agency. Tribal leaders applied for the grant in October and were the only recipient in the region. This type of grant is considered high priority and is intended to address environmental and public health concerns quickly. In this instance, the funds will go towards restoration efforts of the Confederated Tribes Willamette Falls property in Oregon City. The property used to house the Blue Heron paper mill, whose operations are thought to have left hazardous substances at the site. Grand Ron purchased the land in 2019 and this past March released a plan for the site's environmental restoration and mixed-use development. Thanks to the funding, they will be able to run environmental testing and remove underground storage tanks. Long-term goals also include repurposing portions of the site and preparing for demolition. In a statement, Chairwoman of the Confederated Tribes said, quote, addressing the environmental remediation needs will help ensure that the tribe's vision can be fully implemented and bring back people to the Willamette Falls. Second Amendment sanctuaries are facing their first court test in Oregon. This comes against a wave of U.S. counties trying to prohibit police from enforcing certain gun laws. And Columbia County is one of them. Last year, voters narrowly 
approved a measure that forbids local officials from enforcing most federal and state gun laws. If violated, officials could face fines of thousands of dollars. These repercussions separate Columbia County from other so-called Second Amendment sanctuaries whose measures are purely symbolic. Here, they carry legal force. The movement started in 2018 when many states considered stricter gun laws in the wake of mass shootings. In response, conservative lawmakers suggested making it illegal for local police to enforce any federal gun measures. Since then, an estimated 1,200 local governments have adopted Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions. But to date, the movement has not faced any major legal challenges. And while no timeline has been sent for, set for a court hearing, it's looking like Oregon may be the first state to tackle the issue. As counsel to the county, Sarah Hansen said, quote, This will allow the court to tell us whether the county can actually decline to enforce certain state laws. If the court rules in favor of the ordinance, then the county would no longer have to enforce laws like background check requirements and restrictions on carrying a gun. Fire season began Saturday for some parts of Oregon. Unreasonably warm temperatures and a lack of rain have caused the Oregon Department of Forestry to declare the start of the season a month ahead of schedule for certain southern and central counties in the state. This is the earliest that a fire season has begun in more than four decades. And already, experts are anticipating that could be the worst drought in years. As such, officials are being extra cautious in an attempt to prep high-risk counties earlier than usual. So far this year, the Department of Forestry has recorded 132 fires that burned 3,246 acres. And every one of those fires were caused by humans. Fire officials are advising people in affected counties to prepare their homes just to be safe. This includes clearing debris around the home and having evacuation routes planned. For more information and the latest updates, you can visit the Oregon Department of Forestry's website at oregon.gov ODF. And finally, some good news. The Oregon Trail video game is being remade, and this time with a focus on more accurate Native American depictions. The effort was spearheaded by Australian-based company Gameloft for the Apple Arcade Store. But as Gameloft Brisbane's creative director, Jared Trujan, explained, they brought in outside help in the effort. Three indigenous historians lended their expertise, advising on everything from dialogue to music to characters' names. They pushed designers to steer clear of inaccurate, primitive tropes, and advocated for new roles for Native Americans in the game. One advisor, University of Nebraska historian Margaret Huelty, encouraged the team to use informed depictions of different tribes' clothing and style. She also pushed to prioritize historical accuracy for the time period. For example, while the team originally wanted to give Native Americans bows and arrows, Huelty explained that rifles were the weapon of choice for Native American trappers at the time. But as Oregon State University professor David Lewis told the team, the real Oregon Trail wasn't a positive story for Native Americans. He and other Indigenous advisors wanted to make this clear to the Gameloft team. Fortunately, according to Hwalti, 
Game Loft's designers were serious about getting it right. And that's today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Up next, Andy Lindbergh and Julia Oppenheimer speak with Michelle DePass about the upcoming school board election. This off-year election was called the most exciting election in the United States by the Portland Monthly. Portland Public School Board elections are right around the corner, and this year three seats are open, including a highly contested seat representing much of North and Northeast Portland. Joining us to discuss this year's races is Michelle DePass. Michelle is a PPS board member representing Zone 2. Michelle, good morning. Good morning. So why should more people be paying attention to school board elections? Well, that's a great question. It's a question I hear a lot um, because it's a kind of a low turnout, uh, typically anywhere in Portland between 15 and maybe 18%. But people should be concerned about this because... PPS is one of the largest landholders in Portland, um, major employer, and um, manages a, an enormous budget, you know, $760 you know, million budget. So uh, we should be concerned, but also, you know, as concerned community members, we should pay attention because how we educate our kids matters. So what exactly does the school board do? Well, we have three um, three things that we have to do. The first thing is that we hire and evaluate the performance of the superintendent. The second thing we do is we approve a budget, um, annual annual budget. And the third thing we do is set education policy. In and around those three things, um, there's lots of different side branches off of that, and we, do, um, we, we, we can get off track, but those are really the three things that we are elected to do. And, and you know, broadly, we are to assure, you know, the public education of the kids within our community. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the overarching goal. So this uh, race for the Zone 4 seat is, uh, has started out in a fascinating manner. Uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the race for Zone 4? Yeah, yeah, that has been, I mean, there's been a lot of um, interest in, in news about this. So starting in, I'm going to say January or February, uh, we started to see and participate, I I say we, I mean uh, myself, um, participate in trainings to kind of uh, beat the bushes looking for, you know, people that might be interested in running in the the seats that we knew were open. And those would be in Zone 4, that would be uh, basically centered around Roosevelt High School, Zone 5, which would be centered around Grant, and then Zone 6, which would be centered in Franklin. And mm-hmm. so the rules are that you have to live in one of those zones, but you, when you're elected citywide, uh, you're, it's an at-large election. Okay. And so in Zone 4, we had a, a candidate enter the race. The first person, I think, to file, um, there were red flags were raised about that particular candidate, and um, that caused a flurry of you know, parent volunteers coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, we can't have this person on our school board. And so we had, I guess, maybe five or six people file. In the background, running in the background were uh, big efforts to locate a person of color um, that would be um, interested in running and, and, and able to win, you know, to, mm-hmm. to present competition. Well, that person was, was identified and actually filed to run um, and... 
I don't know, the next thing you know, um, <laughs> she was knocked out of the race. And so, you know, um, Herman, Herman Green emerged. And um, anyway, so there, there, are now, there are now three filed candidates in that race and then a write-in, as you know. Yeah, there's uh, there's an interesting article in uh, Portland on the Portland Monthly website that kind of runs through some of the uh, ins and outs, uh, if you will. And uh, what's what's at stake with this race? Well, I mean, this at, what's at stake is you know we've we've got three people filed and you know i think there's a difference between filing and running a campaign and then actually wanting to get the job <laughs> interesting it's, it's a hard job i mean yeah. uh, we got off work last night at 11:45 so um and that that's nothing necessarily for a board member but for a staff member that mm-hmm. means they started their day at eight o'clock in the morning and they ended it at midnight well and when um, you say work these are volunteer positions correct they're unpaid volunteer positions yes. and they're time consuming. So what's at stake? I mean, there's it's a it's a contested race. Um, what's at stake is like who's who's going to win this race. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have ways of. I mean, I guess you can't ever predict the outcome of a race, but just this morning I checked the candidates. Um, I checked two of the candidates' um, Secretary of State campaign finance accounts just to see kind of where they were at. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't look too deeply, but I was able to see um, at least two of the candidates' uh, fundraising efforts. And sometimes that can be a predictor of, 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 a, of a positive outcome. Yeah. Um, if one candidate, you know, got money in the bank and the other one doesn't, that means that the one that doesn't have money in the bank isn't purchasing lawn signs yeah. and, 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 and doing mailers. This is Julia here. I'm gonna I'm gonna chime in because I also I brought my ballot this morning. I have so many questions. Um, cool. I, I love this. You know, on air. You know, watch Julie vote. Yes. Listen, Help listen Julia Julie vote. vote. Um, so the school board. There are three positions open for the director of districts, and then there's also an education service district director. I'm curious what the education Multnomah Education Service District I can, Director. I can does. actually speak to that. I I used to work for the the MESD. Look at this. I'm just the, oh, you did. Cool. In in the 50s or 60s, education service districts were created in the state of Oregon, and they're essentially a separate, free floating school district within certain geographic boundaries, and they were a means to combine resources. So um, at their at their height, um, you would get your nurses, you would check out films. Um, there would be other specific services. Probably the the MESD in in Multnomah County is best known as the uh, for the outdoor school program, which is run through the MESD and then offered to all of the school districts within Multnomah County. So it's a it's a separate school district that does not uh, directly serve kids, they they have programs that other school districts contract out. Um, sure, like special ed services would yes. be a good example. Um, school nurses, mm-hmm. I think sometimes psychologists, yeah, um, they, did, did not know about the outdoor school. Yeah. This is Andy and Julia, and we're speaking with Portland Public School Board member Michelle DePass about the upcoming school board election. Um, 
kind of getting getting back at the zone four seat um reading the the portland monthly article it was interesting to me how much it appeared uh there was both discussion and recruiting um on facebook and social media that that the people who were passionate about finding a candidate were doing so through social media um uh, what kind of role have you been seeing social media playing in the the races for uh, the school board? Well, I actually just signed in um, to Facebook today, which is the platform I'm on the most, mm-hmm. to kind of get an idea. And I mean, in some ways, it's a really great tool mm-hmm. uh, to reach large numbers of people. And then, as a as a candidate, you you know, or a public person, you can get a a, a not a professional Facebook page. Mm. And so it's kind of a great way to get information out to targeted audience if you have that professional page that you pay for. And there's nothing like a good old, you know, door knocking um, in the neighborhoods where you know voters have higher turnouts. Uh, but of course, that's restricted because of the pandemic. You mm-hmm. can't really go, you know, knock on someone's porch and breathe on them. Um, I mean, I think for some people, uh, it might still seem a little bit unsafe to do so. Yeah. So, so social media is that platform, and actually, there, there was there there was in-person recruiting happening too, quite heavily in uh, late January and and February. And um, I'm connected to the Emerge Oregon Network, and that's an organization that trains Democratic women to run for office. Hmm. I know for a fact that uh, I, myself and uh, the the ED of that network. Um, literally made calls several weekends before the filing date hmm. to everyone that had a zip code at the time they registered for the course in North in in the Zone Four in, in um, zone to four. see if there would be any interest in them um, running for office. But it's it's also I think interesting in that zone harder maybe harder to recruit if you look at the um, it doesn't apply necessarily anymore. But if you look at the racial you know res- residential um, housing patterns. It, it might be in St. John's proximity to, you know, it's it's, it's, it's a historically working class um, enclave. It, it might be harder to find people to run from that zone because this is a tough job if you do get it. And um, we've traditionally had people that had the privilege to, you know, put in the 12 to 20 hours a week of board service. Um, and, and so, you know, it's why we haven't seen you know, very many candidates of color, um, single parent candidates, uh, lower income candidates, because it, it does take a big chunk of your your life. You need to be um, mm-hmm. in a position to give the time. Can you walk us through real quick? I, I think you already touched on this, but what what does a typical week in the life of a school board member look like as far as related to the school board? I don't need to know about like you're dropping your kids off at j- the gym or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we meet right now as a board, as a board meeting every other week. And that could be anywhere from a two-hour meeting to, like last night, we le- we ended at, I believe it was 11.45, 11.30 maybe. Um, and they've come later than that. Mm. And so that's just the time you're sitting in the meeting. But to prepare for those meetings, um, we start on the Friday before. We, we get a, a packet of materials the, the Thursday before. 
and have the Friday and the weekend to go through those materials. And that can take anywhere from two hours to unlimited mm-hmm. <laughs> five hours. And I say that because you might read through the board packet and then you might need to make phone calls or do some rallying or try to get input from parents or teachers, you know, because there's always two sides of every issue. So you might be reading something to prepare you for the meeting coming up on Tuesday that you don't, that you need clarity from. And so, you know, you might need to seek clarity. So that's a couple phone calls or figuring out who to call. So the preparation is, uh, takes, takes several hours. And then in between those every other week board meetings are committee meetings Hmm. and check-in meetings. And then every quarter we have a, a board retreat that's like a half a day Saturday. Um, I end up, I'm going to say meeting, I, I'm going to say I meet probably four to five hours, three to five hours a week in just meetings outside of the board meeting. So lots of time given to the community as, as a, a member of the Portland Public School Board, uh, which would then tend to favor people who have at least some time uh, to give, whether they feel that they have that time or not. Um, and it, and I, I, I frame that in terms of just kind of thinking of the, the challenges of recruiting people, of, of talking people into offering up yes. their time. Yes. Um, so the recruiting, you asked about the recruiting, and the recruiting, I mean, I did my own recruiting. I think I participated in three trainings um, uh, through through different organizations. One was through uh, East County Rising and Washington County Ignite. Um, the Portland African American Leadership Forum um, has done a little bit of recruiting training. And the third one was made up of kind of a hodgepodge of, you know, coastal, Oregon coastal Democrats and, 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 and some operatives here in Portland who knew that there would be QAnon um, board, mm-hmm. board candidates throughout the state of Oregon. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is, that has proven to be true in um, Ben Lapine for certain um, in Portland, um, up and down the coast, uh, we have um, candidates that are, running on you know kind of conspiracy theory um you know, conspiracy theories in you know in the schools of sex trafficking that you know masks are you know covid is not real and, and so we knew this in december and so we started uh, we being people that were interested in following these things mm-hmm. looking for strong candidates in january and just what happened in north portland is really interesting because it kind of all boiled down to the last like the last week of the that you could file Mm -hmm. but there had been quite a bit of uh, effort put in you know prior to that well and I think you bring up a really important point as well because I think a lot of people run for school board as kind of a jumping off platform to maybe run for different offices in the future and um, I know a lot of people say like oh I don't have kids so I'm not voting for the school board but it 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 does seem really important to vote for the school board Um, in in part because of that because the people who are on your school board are then going to jump off and per- perhaps run for other things but also you know you don't really want your kids getting misinformation mm-hmm. at the very top of their school so yes yes and there's a there's a very big conversation happening nationally about critical race theory 
and how parents mm-hmm. are like, that's not what I send my kid to school to learn. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's a it's something that we should have that conversation out in, in out in public. So thanks to you for your uh, commitment to our community and thank you for joining us. We need to we need to wrap up real quickly, but um, just briefly, what what are the key takeaways that you've gotten from watching this year's races for the Portland Public School Board? Well, the key thing is, I mean, the importance of actually filing for um, candidacy, that mm-hmm. can, uh, filing to be a candidate is really important. And that's because campaign finance is tracked and um, reporting, and it gives the other, uh, it gives your opponents an idea of where you're at in the race to be able to publicly yep. check your your bank account, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also, I, I feel for Zen 4 that we need to do more training and um uh, training and getting people involved quite a bit earlier, I would say. And, and we've I've already had conversations about starting in in November of the November before the filing date um, in the even years. Well, this may be maybe one of those uh, uh, moments where it, people wake up and realize that they they need to to uh, to pay a little bit more attention to these down ballot or off year uh, elections. Absolutely, it does. It does matter, and and as citizens, we should all vote anyway. Um, it's it's one of the things that it's a privilege to vote, and so um, anyway, yeah, I think that that's true. And I'm actually starting to recruit for my position now. I'm hoping to uh, talk to people early on uh, that would be interested in um, representing Zone Two. All right. Well, uh, Michelle DePass, board member of Portland Public Schools, thank you so much for joining us this morning and discussing this very interesting off-year school board election. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Thanks to Michelle for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.